welcome to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me this morning. Um, before we continue our series on civil disobedience and idolatry, I want to begin with our law of the day, which today is from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 17 through 26. So it's kind of a long one, but uh, we'll get through it fairly quickly. Here is the passage. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them, until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. All right. So a brief explanation of this law. It contains both a promise and a command. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy, which is an expansion or reiteration of some of the laws given in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. And here, Israel is first uh, promised that God will provide the victory. But Israel is to trust God and obey his commands. But, and, and they can trust in him and that God will help them. He's also going to help them through natural judgments. He did say that he's going to send hornets among the pagan nations to help to drive them out. So in, in this sense, God is using uh, all of creation, uh, nature, and the people of Israel themselves to, to judge and to drive out the pagan nations. Now, God does say he's not going to do it too quickly uh, so that Israel does not get overwhelmed by wild beasts. Again, if there's a vacuum, if, if God removes people from the land, it's going to be filled with wild beasts, and Israel needs time to get settled in and to take possession and to take dominion, if you will, of, of the land. So the fight will be progressive in nature. It's going to take time. And over the course of years, maybe decades and generations, Israel will displace the pagan nations. Now, Israel is also commanded here, and this is where the law is very specific, not to take the silver and gold from the idols. So most idols, of course, are going to be covered or coated in silver and gold. They might be even made of silver and gold, but God doesn't want them doesn't want Israel to take any of the metals, even if, you know, you might try to justify it, say, well, I'm going to melt it down. You know, I'll use it. I'm not going to keep the item. I'm just going to melt it down. No, the idea is here that these items are forbidden and kind of like the forbidden fruit. They have an appeal to them. They're glittering. They, they, they are satisfying. They look like they will sustain, sustain you. Just, just take possession of them. But 
the items are supposed to be destroyed. And God warns Israel that those items will ensnare them. And since those idols are destined for destruction, if Israel keeps them, their fate is joined with the idol. To keep the idol is to identify with the idol. So what happens to the idol will happen to them, happen to you. Whatever you join yourself to an idol, uh, you share the same fate as that idol. And all idols are destined for destruction. So let's bring forth some application briefly. Idolatry is a temptation that's always present. It wasn't just present for Israel, it's present for us today. Even something naturally occurring, like silver and gold, can become an idol. Uh, If it takes your loyalty and love from God, it is an idol. And if it leads you to obey different gods, it's an idol. So it's an idol because the item is being associated with something that stands in rebellion against God and his law. So silver and gold aren't normally idolatrous. They don't have to be idols. You can see silver and gold coins and or just pieces of raw silver and gold ore, and it's not necessarily an idol. But when it becomes associated with something that stands in rebellion against God, then you have an idol. Now, all humans and all cultures have idols, and different cultures have different idols, and idols are unique to that culture. They're the, they're the gods of that land, you know, to put it, put it one way. And God's people, we are called to identify the idols and to resist them and to seek to overthrow them. Uh, we are to call people to repent and turn from their idolatry and turn to Christ. And this is a basically spiritual warfare. And Paul talks about this in throughout Scripture in the New Testament. It's, it's not just in Paul's writings. It's all throughout the Bible. But one key passage in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Well, actually, I'll start with verse 3 because I think that's, uh, the context is important there. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So that is an important point to to bring out here is that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. We're to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And we're using spiritual weapons, prayer, uh, the preaching of God's word, arguments, dis- discussion and dialogue, things like that. And we're not to compromise with the idols. Anything can be an idol, and we have to discern which things can be redeemed and which things cannot be redeemed but must be destroyed. So just keep this in mind that like anything that you can think of, can, except for God himself, so any created thing can become an idol. So even your own family could become an idol. And there are parents out there who certainly um, idolize their children. They they want their children to, to do certain things. They want to live vicariously through their children. They pressure their children to a- accomplish certain things or to become a certain kind of person, maybe because there was some kind of a lack in the parent or the parent missed out on some opportunity that he or she thinks that the child should should do. So there's a sense in which we can use our children um, for our own selfish purposes to make ourselves feel better. And in this sense, there's idolatry there. 
the family can become idolatrous. Uh, you know, like I said, children as well, and career, work. Work can become idolatrous, but work is not bad. We're supposed to work. Work is part of the created world and existed before the fall. So just because work can become an idol doesn't mean that work needs to be destroyed. Same thing for the family. Just because children or family can become an idol doesn't mean they should be destroyed. Those things that need to be redeemed should be redeemed and put in their proper place in relationship to God. But there are things that cannot be redeemed but must be destroyed. Okay, Things like pornography would be a perfect example. That certainly can be an idol. Sexual immorality, uh, sexual lust can be an idol. And, and things like pornography, prostitution, uh, those things need to be destroyed. That's just a couple examples. Um, in the ancient world, it certainly would have been, you know, statues of Moloch and, and things like that need to be destroyed. They can't be redeemed. And, and here in the, in the law uh, given to Israel, uh, in this case, the silver and the gold from those idols can't be, it's not to be redeemed. They're not even to try to redeem it um, there. But the land will be. So they're going to take possession of the land, of the vineyards, of the orchards, of the pagan nations. Um, and they're going to take possession of those things and to essentially redeem them and, and take dominion of the land and to um, work the land for the glory of God. So that is our law of the day. And with that, we're going to continue with our series on civil disobedience and idolatry. I believe this is episode three of that series. So it's kind of a brief recap. We looked at what is an idol? What is idolatry? Um, how do you how do you recognize an idol? Uh, you can you can see how a culture has an idol by how they respond when the idol is threatened. Uh, we saw this in looking at Demetrius' silversmith in the last episode, um, and we talked about how uh, cultures respond when you threaten their idol with fear and anger um, and and love for those who join them in idolatry. So then we also looked at how Christians came to be targeted by the Roman Empire and how they first started out as just another Jewish sect and the Jews were kind of exempt from the requirements that the Romans had. But then when Romans started to become Christians, there was an issue there. You can't have Romans becoming not Roman, becoming Christian, which were associated with the Jews, um, so you get this, this issue of persecution beginning to take place because the Christians are, they're strange, they're, they're, they're engaging in, in strange behavior, they're not participating in a lot of the things that identify a person as Roman, whether it's the, the Roman public baths or the entertainment, the circus, mostly because, and the Colosseum, mostly because those things were very lewd. Um, very inappropriate, and obviously in the Colosseum, you're you're killing people, murdering uh, people, watching people kill each other, slaves, um, and uh, even of course other Christians later on. So the Christians were were known for some of their strange behaviors, and they increasingly became uh, a problem to the Romans because they were converting people. They weren't just leaving people alone. Uh, it wasn't much. It wasn't really a live and let live kind of thing. The Christians were actively uh, speaking out against some of the abuses and the idolatrous practices, including infanticide and abortion, 
that was taking place in the empire, including uh, the bloody uh, Roman games and the lewd behavior, inappropriate sexual conduct. So all these things uh, the Christians were, were speaking out against. They were living Christian life, but they were also uh, seeking to, to save people, to, to get people out of idolatry and to become Christians. So it's a little bit more than what the Jews were doing than what any other cult or sect was really trying to do. So the Romans respond uh, when the Christians start becoming more of a problem or more known throughout the empire, and they start to try to get Christians to recant or to turn uh, away from serving the Christian God. And I want to read to you a letter from Pliny and written to the Emperor Trajan. Uh, This is before there's any kind of empire-wide persecution, but there is still local uh, persecution happening, just not decreed by the emperor, but being reported to the emperor. So so Pliny here is a governor, and he's reporting to the emperor Trajan what what he's seeing here. So uh, I'm going to read a a section of the letter. It's it's fairly long, but I'm just going to read one portion of it. Quote, In the meanwhile... The method I have observed towards those who have been brought before me as Christians is this. I asked them whether they were Christians. If they admitted it, I repeated the question twice and threatened them with punishment. If they persisted, I ordered them to be at once punished. For I was persuaded, whatever the nature of their opinions might be, a contumacious and inflexible obstinacy certainly deserved correction. There were also others brought before me possessed with the same infatuation, but being Roman citizens, I directed them to be sent to Rome. But this crime spreading, as is usually the case, while it was actually under prosecution, several instances of the same nature occurred. An anonymous information was laid before me containing a charge against several persons who, upon examination, denied they were Christians or had ever been so. They repeated after me, an invocation to the gods, and offered religious rites with wine and incense before your statue, which for that purpose I had ordered to be brought, together with those of the gods, and even reviled the name of Christ. Whereas there is no forcing, it is said, those who are really Christians into any of these compliances, I thought it proper, therefore, to discharge them. Some among those who were accused by a witness in person at first confessed themselves Christians, but immediately after denied it. The rest owned indeed that they had been of that number formerly, but had now, some above three, others more, and a few above twenty years ago, renounced that error. They all worshipped your statue and the images of the gods, uttering imprecations at the same time against the name of Christ. They affirmed the whole of their guilt, or their error, was that they met on a stated day before it was light, and addressed a form of prayer to Christ as to a divinity, binding themselves by a solemn oath, not for the purposes of any wicked design, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to eat in a common, harmless meal. End quote. So it's quite interesting that Pliny, at the end of that section, describes what the Christians are doing. And all of it sounds great. Like in our eyes today, we'd be like, huh? They're promising not to engage in adultery and not to lie and steal. 
but to keep their promises and they just engage in a common harmless meal. But yet Pliny is threatening them if they don't renounce Christ and if they don't sacrifice to the gods of Rome and to the image of the emperor. So it's just kind of, it, it seems kind of strange from our eyes that, that it would bother him so much. Um, and what's also interesting is that, as Pliny mentions, their obstinacy, their, their inflexibility with their beliefs for him was enough to punish them. The very fact that they were firm in their beliefs was worthy of punishment in his eyes. So uh, you have this idea there that, that Rome does not want people who stand firm in their beliefs. So as Christianity spreads, it's persecuted locally, not, not throughout the whole empire. Uh, we do see examples uh, with Emperor Nero, where he blamed the Christians for the great fire of Rome uh, and you know, subsequently punished them and, and persecuted them. And in fact, he used Christians as torches for his dinner parties, uh, which is a little disturbing. But that was really just in the city of Rome, not throughout the entire empire. Now, around 249 AD, so about 200 years plus after Jesus, um, the emperor Decius is the basically the first emperor to inaugurate a an empire-wide official persecution of Christians. But it's not really, and I'll explain why it's not really, like he's not trying to pick on Christians. It just so happens that his decree, his plan results naturally into the persecution of Christians, and I'll show you why. So around that time, uh, Emperor Decius was concerned about the empire, all right? This is around 249 AD. He wanted to rebuild spiritual unity of the empire. He wanted to rally all the provinces and all the tribes around the gods of Rome. And he wanted to marshal all his resources, human and divine, to increase the strength of the empire. Because at this time, the empire is struggling economically. Um, it's pressed on all sides by outward threats, uh, barbarians, uh, and then also Persians to the east. And, of course, uh, a great plague struck the empire around 249 AD. It's called the Plague of Cyprian because a bishop elder in the church uh, wrote about this plague in one of his letters. And here's what he says about it, quote, Afterwards, there broke out a dreadful plague, an excessive destruction of a hateful disease invaded every house in succession of the trembling populace, carrying off day by day with abrupt attack numberless people every one from his own house. All were shuddering, fleeing, shunning the contagion, impiously exposing their own friends, as if with the exclusion of the person who was sure to die of the plague, one could exclude death itself also. There lay about the meanwhile over the whole city no longer bodies but the carcasses of many, and by the contemplation of a lot which in their turn would be theirs, demanded the pity of the passers-by for themselves. No one regarded anything besides his cruel gains. No one trembled at the remembrance of a similar event. No one did to another what he himself wished to experience. So kind of in summary there, Cyprian is describing how, how the pagans, how the, the Romans behaved. Anyone who got sick, boom, kicked out of the house. Um, bodies left in the streets. Those who were out in the streets were begging for help. They didn't get help. And everybody wanted help, Everybody wanted mercy, but no one ever showed mercy. Now, uh, when you look at some of the statistics, at the height of the plague, about 5,000 people 
died in Rome, just the city of Rome itself, each day. Each day, 5,000 people died. So all this is going on. There's some economic problems due to inflation, devaluing the currency. Um, there's, there's the outside threat of barbarians and other countries. And then there's the plague. So when this is all happening at the same time, the Romans came to believe that the gods were punishing them. And so the, the emperor was motivated to pursue unity, basically a return to the good old days, if you will, right, where Rome was strong and healthy. And so he ordered that there would be a public display of faithfulness. He ordered all inhabitants of the empire to sacrifice to the gods, to taste the sacrificial meat and to pour out the wine, the libations, and to swear that they have always offered sacrifices. So basically, we just need a, um, a sign of, of loyalty and unity. We need everyone to come together uh, as one family, you know, one Roman family, and let's, uh, let's be unified. And if we do that, uh, the good old days will, will return. Prosperity will come back. Now, it seems like only the Jews were exempt from this. Again, they, they were a small minority, um, and they didn't really proselytize. They didn't, they didn't push their beliefs upon people. So the Romans had no problem just kind of letting the Jews alone. Um, they had historically done so, uh, but not, not the Christians. And we'll see, we'll see how that happens here because a lot of the Christians are Romans. So all the citizens are supposed to make these sacrifices and to prove that they did the work, they had to get what was called a, a libelus or it's a certificate, paper certificate. It's an official certificate that they were loyal citizens. And again, it was to, it was to enforce unity and solidarity. It's an, it's an appeal to the gods. Uh, offer a pinch of incense to the image of the emperor. And here's an example. Uh, we have a couple uh, uh, libelists uh, available, uh, ancient um, texts, uh, scraps of paper from the empire. And here is what one says, quote, To those superintending sacrifices of the village of Theodelphia, from Aurelia Bellius, daughter of Petres, her daughter Capini. We have sacrificed to the gods all along, and now in your presence, according to orders, I poured a libation and sacrificed and tasted of the sacred offerings, and I request you to subscribe this for us. Farewell. We, Aurelius Serenus and Aurelius Hermas, saw you sacrificing. Signed by me, Hermas. End quote. So this is just an example of a libelist and, and the certificates that would have been handed out for those who engaged in the proper sacrifice. Uh, and when you had that, you were basically good to go. You're free to move about the empire and to buy and sell and to do all the things that you need to do to live. Now, now keep in mind here that Rome was only concerned with outward public behavior. Uh, the outward act mattered more to them than what you believed in your head. And really, you could believe whatever you want in your head. The issue is public unity and strength. And the importance was um, the relationship between the deity, between the gods, and the community. Not so much the individual and his own personal gods. So essentially, sacrificing for the gods and offering incense to the emperor, uh, to the image and genius of the emperor, was a, a sign of loyalty to the group. It was a code of membership, if, if you will. It was a sign of that you are a good Roman citizen, that you care about the empire, and that you basically love your neighbor. I mean, that's really, you know, to not do that is to basically say that you don't love your neighbor. You, you know, you're, you're, what, you're not against this plague. You're not against the barbarians. You're not against the economic depression. Like, you don't want those things to go away. What's wrong with you? 
What's, what's your problem? Why don't you sacrifice? This is what we need to do to rebuild and save the empire. Don't you want to save the empire? Okay, so that's the idea behind this. And for the pagans, this act was simply a contract. That's all it was. You give the gods what they want, libation, pinch of incense, a little bit of meat, and they help you get what you need, right? That's how it works. It's just a contract. It's not anything more than that. It's not a deep personal relationship. Um, so persecuting the Christians wasn't the goal. That's not what Emperor Decius set out to do. He was genuinely trying to save his empire. Like in his heart, it seems like what he really wanted was unity of the empire. But, but the problem was is that the Christians couldn't do what he was commanding them to do. And this turned them into enemies of the state, a threat to be wiped out because we have this group of people that aren't complying. This group of people is not doing what the emperor requires them to do. They're not team players here. And actually, they become scapegoated. They become blamed because if they don't comply, the gods won't be pleased and the things will just keep getting worse. If only these darned Christians just complied, everything would be fine. And the emperor could not understand why the Christians could not sacrifice to Rome outwardly, but also just serve their own God, Jesus, inwardly. Why, why couldn't they do both? He didn't understand that. And a lot of the pagans couldn't understand that. And when the Christians refused to comply, they were blamed. You know, the gods were angry at the Christians. It was their fault that bad things kept happening. And, and the pagans thought it was just very stupid. And they even told the Christians, like, just, just, you can believe what you want. Just offer the pinch of incense. Just, just do that, okay? But the Christians were obstinate in their beliefs. Like I just read in, in Pliny's letter, they were very obstinate. They would, not, they would not compromise with what they saw as idolatry, okay? So they, they got the pagans angry at them. You know, they, the Romans just couldn't stand for, for such an obstinate group of people that wouldn't do the right thing that was best for the empire. So if you didn't do it, uh, if you didn't get the libelous, you could be fined, tortured, imprisoned, exiled, or even killed. Now, there was different responses from the Christians. There were, there were some that gave up and abandoned the Christian faith and went ahead with it. There were some that just basically tried to do what the pagans wanted them to do, you know, just outwardly, you know, sign the document, offer the pinch of incense. But, you know, deep down inside, I'm still going to love Jesus. Uh, some Christians bribed their way, so they paid somebody else to do the sacrifices, um, and then they got the libelous in their name, or they got false papers. They got a false, a, a falsified libelous. But others just openly resisted and defied the orders. They refused to, to play those games, and of course, they were the first ones to be targeted. And this later on would lead to controversies in the church, because when the persecution ended, then the Christians had to figure out, how do we respond to those Christians that capitulated and that compromised? Do they, do they come back in the church? Can they be elders again and deacons? Do they have to be rebaptized? if they, if they um, abandon Christ earlier. And these are things that uh, Cyprian, uh, what I mentioned earlier, his letter regarding the plague, Cyprian was a very well-known uh, Christian leader, uh, elder, and bishop who um, got, he ended up getting martyred in 258 AD because he did not offer a pinch of incense to Caesar. And in fact, here we have an account of his execution. 
And so here is the account. Essentially, he was arrested and prosecuted by a proconsul named Galerius Maximus. And this is what uh, Maximus says. Are you Thasius Cyprianus? Cyprian replies, I am. Galerius says, the most sacred emperors have commanded you to conform to the Roman rites. Cyprian's response, I refuse. Galerius says, take heed for yourself. And Cyprian replies, do as you are bid. In so clear a case, I may not take heed. Galerius, after briefly conferring with his judicial council, with much reluctance pronounced the following sentence. You have long lived an irreligious life and have drawn together a number of men bound by an unlawful association and professed yourself an open enemy to the gods and the religion of Rome and the pious, most sacred and august emperors have endeavored in vain to bring you back to conformity with their religious observances, Whereas, therefore, you had been apprehended as principal and ringleader in these infamous crimes, you shall be made an example to those whom you have wickedly associated with. The authority of law shall be ratified in your blood. Maximus then read the sentence of the court from a written tablet. It is the sentence of this court that Thasius Cyprianus be executed with the sword. Cyprian's reply, thanks be to God. So that is the end of the account of Cyprian's execution. If you see, what's happening here is he's being accused of crimes against the state. Um, and from the perspective of the pagan, he is a wicked man, an unlawful association, refusing to comply with the uh, ordinances of the, of the emperor, not be, basically not being a good citizen and tr- drawing other people to his, to his cause. Uh, all these things, uh, you know, just earned Cyprian a death sentence. And declared unlawful and wicked. And so, of course, from the pagan's perspective, that's what's going to happen. So, anyways, to kind of summarize, and and we're going to end very shortly here on on this point, uh, the issue that was happening in the Roman Empire was that public displays of obedience like this, uh, the Christians couldn't do that. It was beyond the authority uh, given to them through Scripture. God said, you can't do that. Um, it's pretty clear that, you know, Jesus taught that Caesar can, you can, he can get what is his. Caesar can claim what is his, but he can't claim what is God's. So homage, worship, sacrifice, all those things, uh, faith and trust is not to be given to Caesar. Yes, you're to, you're to honor and respect uh, and, and obey Caesar only as far as he's not uh, disobeying God, not causing, not calling you to disobey God, not calling you to sin against God or to do un, ungodly things. So at the end of the day, Scripture not only prohibits inward idolatry, because that, that would certainly be a, a problem to be sure, but Scripture also prohibits outward displays of idolatry. And let me give you just one passage before we close here that mentions this and talks about this. It's from 1 Corinthians, uh, it's from chapter 10, verses 23 through 30. So here is what Paul says to the Christians in Corinth, who are mostly Gentile Christians. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. 
for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So the issue here is that you're not to worry about what the meat, what happened to the meat. Because like, in the meat market, a lot of the meat, most of it really, had been offered in sacrifice to the gods. I mean, they didn't eat it all during the sacrifices. So when they were done in the temples, they would sell the meat in the market. And the meat could have been offered to some kind of god, you know, Artemis or Jupiter or whatever. But Paul says, look, don't, it meets the meat. Nothing is magical about the meat. All right, don't don't worry about it. Eat, you can eat it. Don't go out of your way to worry about whether that meat was offered to a, uh, an idol or not. So eat whatever is sold in the market. Don't raise a question or a ground of conscience. And then he, but then he says, okay, what if you what if you're invited to dinner by a pagan, an unbeliever? Now eat whatever is put before you. Okay, so you can go to their house. You, they're going to make the food. Just just enjoy it. Don't worry about in the the the, the food. But except when they press you, except when they're trying to bind your conscience, except when they're playing that game, when they say in front of you, oh, by the way, this food's been offered in sacrifice to my gods. In that case, don't eat it. But it's not because it's a sin for you. It's because of their conscience. And he says, why should my liberty be determined or controlled by someone else's conscience. So we have a situation here where the unbeliever is trying to bind the conscience of the Christian. He's trying to to determine what liberty you have. He's trying to test you, right? Um in this regard. And in this and in this case, don't play the game. Don't play don't play by their rules, okay? It's and don't eat the meat then, okay? And it's more for their conscience than than for yours. Because essentially, you could be denounced for that. You know, you eat the, he says, oh, this has been sacrificed to the gods. And you're like, okay, that's fine. And then you eat it. And then he can go and say, hey, look, I got this Christian over here. He ate, he, he, he ate the food that was sacrificed to my gods. Look at that. He did it all. He knew it. He knew it and he did it. Look at that. It, 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 that's going to just drag the name of Christ in the mud. It's going to make it worse. Um, that kind of um, trying to be friendly, you know, trying to be nice and be part of the person's hospitality and enjoy their hospitality? No. Um, there are some things you can't compromise on, and, and this is a form of idolatry that you can't, when they kind of try to bind your conscience. So that's really what's happening here um, when it comes to the Roman Empire. Uh, you can eat meat, but when they put it in front of you and they say, oh, by the way, this is for the gods. Um, this is the public. We want this to be a public display of your loyalty and affection for Rome, your love of the country, and your desire to see things go well. Well, no, I'm not going to do that. We'll be good citizens, but we're not going to we're not going to play those games and engage and and follow you, join you in your idolatry. So we'll continue next time. Really um, taking these examples. How do we apply this today, and how do we engage in that civil disobedience that the early Christians engaged in um, when we're being asked to engage in idolatry? So we'll continue with that next time. I hope this was a useful uh, episode for you. And again, if you have um, any questions, email me at the gbgpodcast at gmail.com. Please share the show with a friend. Give thumbs up, stars, reviews. All those things help to get this show out to more people. And so until next time, take care. And-
God bless you.